Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm chatting with Stuart Menzies, who's from Scotland and is a lifesaver and partner of Susan. And hi, Stuart. Thanks very much for joining me tonight. Do you think you could firstly tell me briefly about yourself? Yeah, sure. So a little bit of background about me. Um, you'll hear from accent straight away. Um, I'm born and bred from Scotland. Um, so um, I'm middle-aged. I'll go for that. I just turned 50 last <laughs> year. Um, married to Susan. Um, uh, Susan's been my partner, my wife, for 25 years this year. And we've been together for... 35 years, so do the sums. Um, we've known each other a very long time. We have three children. Um, our son is um, graduated from university. He's uh, 23 now. Um, we've got twin girls who are 21. Um, and we stay in Dunfermline in Fife, so that's kind of the central Scotland area. Work-wise, I'm a police officer. I've been a police officer for over 28 years now. Um, yeah, that's that's... A little, a little intro, um, and you'll probably get a lot more from me about my background as we go on. So are you heading towards retirement as, as a police officer? Not that I'm counting, but 102 weeks. <laughs> 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 yes, um, uh, any police officers listening will know exactly what I mean. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the last of the old school who can retire after 30 years police service. So, yeah, so I retire in April 2021. Uh-huh. Well, good luck. Thanks very much. And the new life begins. <laughs> and talking of new life, so I guess you probably already stepped into a new life uh, a couple of years ago when uh, Susan had a cardiac arrest. Yeah, yeah. So let me talk in a bit of detail about that. And um, maybe I'll go about our background of our life before then, the old normal. Uh, and then we can move on to the, the new normal. So I've talked about our family background and so on, um, and we, we just lived life as I would think any other family did, um, very close with our children, holidays, looking to the future, planning ahead, a lot of it based around my retirement. Um, Susan works full-time. Um, so, yeah, just looking ahead, that was the, the old normal. Um, I keep fit and healthy, thank goodness, and I'll touch wood on that one. Um, Susan's generally kept fit and healthy, um, but had the odd ailments um, through the years, just as um, anybody would. Now, if I go back to 2015, end of 2015, um, Susan had an illness which was undiagnosed. She she had um, a lot of um, pain around her pelvis area um, and so on, to such an extent that she was hospitalised on a few occasions. Um, and given a series of antibiotics, we eventually counted up over the period from, I think, December to January. She had been given eight or nine different sorts of antibiotics. Uh, it was suspected that she had an infection around about her pelvis. Um, they, they couldn't actually diagnose um, exactly what. Uh, in any case, so she wasn't keeping too great with this undiagnosed illness. Um, move on to February 11th. 2016, so that's the date our life changed. Um, we decided to go out shopping. Susan didn't want to go out shopping. Um, she wasn't feeling good, um, but was very lethargic. But I said to her, you know, let's let's go out and 
do the monthly shop. Let's do that. So, um, so we popped along to visit um, some friends for a short time, and then we headed off to our, our local Asda, um, and off we went shopping, filling the trolleys up, just as you would met a few people on the way, um, and everything was as normal. Um, probably three quarters of the way around our shop, um, I recall it's a coffee aisle, which we'll probably talk about later on again about my revisits. Um, so I recall um, at the coffee aisle, and I remember looking at Susan um, over the few aisles before that and thinking, she doesn't look too good. She was looking pale, dark-eyed, um, but was soldiering on. But she just, I do remember she didn't look too good at all. I, I was in front of her. I heard her call out my name. I looked round. Um, and she collapsed into a, a set of shells. Um, I managed to grab her, and uh, I laid her on the ground. Um, now, as we've mentioned already, I've been a police officer for 28 years. Um, I, I worked at our training school for three years, so I trained first aid. Um, I'm a first aid trainer, um, or I was. That was back in the early 2000s. I worked there for three years. So I had my fair bit of knowledge of first aid through training it and um, through my job as well. Um, so anyway, I laid her down. Uh, I put her in a recovery position. I saw that she was unconscious. I thought, um, I wasn't sure what her breathing was like. I thought she was having a seizure. I was since no different, obviously. Um, and I called out and asked somebody to call an ambulance for me. So I had her in a recovery position. She was foaming about the mouth slightly uh, and strong breathing, uh, which I now know is agnostic breathing. Um Ambulance came on, the, given a mobile phone, ambulance was there, and they just asked me to um, describe the symptoms. Uh, I, I quickly went through my doctor ABCs uh, from my first aid days, and I was definitely in work mode by that time, albeit Susan is my wife. I was, I was at work as far as I was concerned, um, and I was able to reel that off, no problem at all. Um, the immediate diagnosis, after I was asked for the the gaps between her breathing, that she was in cardiac arrest, I was to put her on her back and do CPR. And, well, off I went. Um, and I remember singing Nelly the Elephant when I was doing the CPR, which, um, yeah, it's a, a strange a strange memory, I have to say. Um, so uh, cracking on my CPR, was going to do breast, but was joined by somebody. Um, he's a colleague, I know, Rachel. Um, Rachel thought I was helping another shopper out explained it was my wife, it was Susan. Um, so Rachel um, quickly in said, I'll do breaths, you do compressions. And off we went. Um, I insisted that we had the paramedic or the ambulance service to remain on the phone. Um, I had a number of um, ASDA staff round about me. Um, and we just continued on doing our compressions. Um, one of them asked me if they wanted to take over, and I was insistent that I was doing this. Nobody else was doing it. Um, and Rachel continued with breaths. Um, I have no idea how long that went on for. Absolutely no idea. Um, I just knew I wasn't going to stop. Um, but it was a number of verses in Ellie the Elephant, best way to describe it. Um, I do also recall seeing the defib, um, bright orange in colour, um, next to Susan's head. Um, I also recall that I wasn't really in a mindful position to tell somebody to open it and spark it up. Um, I was continuing on and focused on doing good compressions and I'm asking for updates when the ambulance was due to arrive. Um, I think the next thing I remember was the ambulance crew arriving 
Um, I got a pat on the back and says, keep going, you're doing a good job. Um, and then they started setting their kit up. Um, third ambulance um, person arrived, and then I got moved out of the way, and I remember looking back, and they took over compressions. Um, I remember walking away. I remember them cutting over open Susan's top and thinking how affronted she'd be because she was topless and Asda. Um, they think of the strangest of things, don't you? <laughs> um, and then Rachel came up beside me, and then that's when... Uh, that's when realism started to set in when I heard the defib kicking off because it's fair to say I was probably in disbelief what had actually happened. I just went out shopping with my wife. She's only 46. This can't be happening. Uh, but it was. And I heard the defib kicking off once, talking, and then kicking off. Um, and then kicking off a second time. Again, not fully understanding that it would possibly do two um, hits um, to reset her heart. Um yeah, that was um, a, a major shock to the system. Rachel popped down and then came back and told me that um, they had a faint pulse, but she was alive, um, and that we were going to be taking her to hospital. So that's kind of the first part of the story um, of what happened um, with us. As a lot of partners are aware, it's a, a pretty shocking and traumatic experience to uh to actually witness, and you're quite, you're a little bit probably quite unusual in that you you saved your uh, your wife, but out of the home. A lot of these do happen at home, and it is down to a, a partner to save the other the other half, as it were. But it's quite unusual. You're out out and about and uh, managed to do it. So it's a well done to you, anyway. And uh, you mentioned about the AED uh, being nearby but not being used. It's not the first time I've heard that, um, and it. It's possibly something uh, that ASDA should be looking into if they they haven't already. Um, I don't. Did you ever speak to them about this? Yeah, well, I, I did. Um, now, I think about a week. It was maybe five days, seven days later. Um, I knew I was suffering from trauma, and there were certain things I had to do. And again, it's back just to my. 28 years experience as a police officer I know there's certain things um, you have to do when you've witnessed um, traumatic things which um, unfortunately um, in that length of time I've been in the service I've witnessed things people shouldn't really see or be involved in so I knew I had to deal with that and one of the things was to revisit the location where it had happened um, so yeah it was five or seven days in um, I was I went back to ASDA um, and asked to speak with the, the manager. Um, met the manager, explained who I was, and um, thanked him um, for the staff who were there. He told me that the, the two staff who were mainly involved and um, assisting me or speaking with me and so on. Um, I had to go home that day, and I, I did apologise for that. Um, however, I was a kind of double-edged sword there because um, I explained standing next to the ED, um, that I knew it was there. Um, and I know that in my day job, I'm used to dealing with trauma. Um, and I know that as the workers are there to manage, to do customer service, to stack shelves, etc., and are not used to dealing with trauma, but there's no point having an ED, which is fully operational in your store, if you're not going to open it up and be confident enough to use it. It's pointless having it. Um, even if you have a very assertive 
experienced police officer um, barking out instructions, you still have to overpower that um, and do what's right. Um, if I had been set up, I would have went off with it, and that would have been fine. Um, it just stayed in the it stayed in the, the case, and I wasn't in a position to be barking out instructions. Um, and I offered to come to any of the training sessions um, and just talk through what had happened and the importance of being that assertive person and setting up the AED. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, I've not held anything since. Yeah, it's a shame. You mentioned that, that there's a couple of things that, as a policeman you've been trained to do after sort of witnessing a trauma. One's revisiting the scene. Is, are there any other sort of like tips you can pass on to other uh, partners who may have been in a similar situation? Not necessarily in Asda, but anywhere. No, no, not at all. We, we, we have what's called a trim process. Um, and um, You're going to ask me what trim stands for, and I really can't remember. So we have, um, we have um, specific trained officers, uh, um, and as a supervisor, if any of my staff were involved in um, an incident which had a degree of trauma, um, I would be referring officers, um, and it's up to them, it's voluntary, but they generally do go along um, to um, take part in the trim process. So that would be an independent officer who would sit with them and they'd, just, they'd have a discussion um, and get things out in the open and generally get to the end goal of, you know what, it's okay. However anybody's feeling it's okay. Um, what you've been through is um, not the norm, but it's okay to feel how you're feeling. And they generally have a chat and just bounce ideas off each other. Um, so that's a that's a process that um, we have um, in the, the police service, and that's to talk. And as you probably heard already, I'm continuing mm-hmm. to talk because it helps me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? You left the story that uh, Susan was uh, taken away by the paramedics, and uh, you were left there. So what happened next? Yeah, there we go. So um, that was around about twenty past four. I think it was. February 11th, I think it was a Thursday. Um, so they asked, um, so Rachel asked me if I was going in the ambulance. Um, my immediate planning heads came in and I wanted to drive because I needed a car because the hospital was 80 miles away. Um, so I jumped in my car and off I went. I left Susan in the safe hands of the paramedics. Um, still don't know if that was the right thing to do or not, but yeah, I done it. And I had a car at the end of the day to transport me about. So, um, on the journey through, I was um, looking in the, the mirror um, to see the ambulance. There was no sign of it. I was looking for the blue lights. Um, no sign of it whatsoever on the, uh, the journey. I say it's around about 18 miles. Uh, I made a number of phone calls um, to organise a family. Um, so, I phoned Susan's parents, who are elderly, um, spoke with her father, and advised them only that Susan had collapsed. Um, and could they make their way through to the hospital? Um, I contacted my son. In fact, I, I said to Susan's father to pick up my daughters as well because they were both um, on study leave, um, just finishing off school, um, getting ready for going to university. Um, and then I phoned my son um, and asked him to get in contact with Susan's sister, who also worked in Edinburgh, um, and make both to make their way to the hospital. Um by the time I'd arranged that, I arrived at the hospital um, into A&E. Uh, again, it's a place I'm very familiar with um, through my work. Spoke with the receptionist who was aware that I'd be coming, so that was comforting. 
Um, what was not comforting was I was putting what I would term as the side room, if I say that in capital letters. Um, it's a room I've been in many times, um, and not for pleasant things. It's uh, generally the room you put um, families in um, who are grieving. Um, so I was asked to go into the side room. So I feared the worst, um, just from my previous experience of being in that room. Um, a period after that, I would think maybe 10 minutes or so, um, realism definitely set in there, and I had a, a breakdown to myself. Um but I needed to get that out, so yeah, I had a, a good cry. Um, and maybe 10 minutes, as I say, into that, a young doctor, a very young doctor came in. That's when you know you're getting old when the doctors are young. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm pleased. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I remember the first time he didn't speak, I just said to me, just um, could you tell me if she's alive or dead, please? Uh, and he said, she's alive. That's excellent news, thank you. What's happened? And he says, she's had a cardiac arrest, but she's alive. Right. Okay, and he says, we're working with her just now, but she is alive. Um, the consultant will come and see you in a little while and have further discussions with you. Right. That's good. Uh, we've got our family coming, um, and I just sat and waited, and the family slowly arrived. So, um, um, yeah, Susan's parents arrived. I remember her mum with an overnight bag, um, and I always, always have a laugh at that, thinking you're optimistic. That was the first <laughs> thing that went through my head. Um, they clearly didn't know what had happened um, and the seriousness of what had happened. I just said she'd collapsed. Um, but, yeah, all the family arrived and I explained what was happening. Um, Susan's mum, albeit she's in her 70s, she was a nurse all her life, um, so she understands. Um, but still that element of disbelief from us all that wait she's only 46, how can she have a cardiac arrest. There's nothing wrong with her heart. And they were quite right, strangely enough. And the next step after that, that was um, that was a horrible little bit. Um, the consultant came in, um, a lovely chap, um, and he asked to speak with me uh, alone. And we went outside um, and explained to me that um, Susan had had a cardiac arrest. She was alive. Um, but she wasn't reacting normally just now, um, which I generally expected from somebody who had suffered a cardiac arrest, um, and he was wanting to put her into a coma, a controlled coma. Um, so I went from the ecstasy of she's alive to the other extreme in that short time of thinking, what have I done? I've saved her, and she's mm-hmm. she might not pull through, or she might have a a severe disability through a lack of oxygen to her brain. Um, so the it was you can't get any more than a roller coaster than that, can you? No. Did did they explain why they wanted to put her back into a coma? Or? Yeah, yeah. The, the brief explanation was it needs our body's been through massive trauma and it needs to rest and repair itself. And the best way to do that is to lower her temperature, put her in a coma, um, and then check her vital signs. Um, specifically through her brain. Um, so that's what was explained to me. Um, I popped my head in and spoke with um, our mum and dad, and our mum said, that is not happening to my daughter. I want to see her. Um, okay. So the consultant was happy with that. So I went through with um, our mum and my son, I think. I must ask him. Somebody else was there. I really can't remember. Um, so through to the um, 
the main um, the, the crash area I would describe it as um, in the A&E um, and there was Susan she was lying on the bed she was wires everywhere um, she was moving but semi-conscious and I tried speaking with her and she started to try and communicate back her mum spoke with her and she called out mummy um, and mum kept speaking to her and she kept speaking back and the consultant's at the end of the bed with his thumbs up nodding his head encouraging us to keep talking so we did we just kept chatting with her um, and she slowly started coming around um, to such an extent within three or four minutes um, what happened but what happened and then that was a phrase that stuck with us for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the big thumbs up at that point from the consultant, and he said, no coma. He says, no, we're good. That's what I want to see. That must have been quite emotional at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying nothing more than that one. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. Um, it's That was a roller coaster from, from what I'd been through yeah. um, in Asda, to managing the family, the journey through, she's alive, she may have severe brain injury, we need to freeze her, come and see her. Yeah, that's... Um, and at what sort of space of time was that? Uh, I would think that was about two hours in total. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I think I think cardiac arrest occurred around 20 past four, um, so that would be... I think that was about half past six, I'm guessing, but... Um, the last thing on my mind was time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Her time in the hospital, did, did she sort of continually improve from that point? Yeah, the time in the hospital was interesting. So um, so we got the thumbs up. Um, they were comfortable. She was stable very early on. Um, and then they moved her up into intensive care. And I went up and joined her after she'd moved up there. But the care, the, the, the care from the trauma teams was... Just incredible, absolutely incredible. I, I, I can't emphasise how good it was, and we, we, you know, we should be proud of our NHS. It was, it was exceptional. Absolutely, from the ambulance service to the trauma teams at A and E, and then up into um, intensive care. So the same consultant was the duty doctor in intensive care. Um, I remember being in intensive care. I sat with Susan all night. They gave me a room and a bed in it. Um, and I stayed there that night. I stayed with her all night. Um, there was five beds, five different patients. The consultant was on the ward. It was an arc. That's the best way to describe it. So five beds in an arc with an island in the middle. Um, each patient had at least one nurse allocated to them. Um, and as I say, the consultant was on that room, on that ward with them as well. Um so Susan was all wired up and we sat and she was drowsy and we just sat and chatted and it was what happened. And I explained to her, did I die? Oh, not really. <laughs> okay, but what happened again? And that just, we just went round in circles with that um, um, until she had a bit of sleep and I went away and I knew I needed to charge the batteries. So as I say, they were kind enough to give me a room nearby. Um, and I could come back and forward whenever I wanted so I would get half an hour sleep and back through to check her again and so on and that went on for most of the night um, she was there for 
two days, I think. Um, I really can't remember. Maybe for two days. Yeah, she was, because I went home in the morning, um, had a shower and um, changed clothes, and then went back again. Um, I'm saying change clothes, and that's a, that's a funny one as well, because, um, uh, yeah, I remember the clothes I was wearing um, that day, and I've not worn them since. <laughs> I still have them. <laughs> I've not worn them since. A nice T-shirt that I have as well, <laughs> and a nice jumper, but I can't wear them. Um, <laughs> and I'm not a super well. I suppose I am superstitious, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just don't wear them. Um, I still have them, but I don't wear them, and that's that. And then one of my daughters is the same. She knows what she was wearing, and she won't wear the clothing either. So, yeah, but it's a family thing. Um, anyway, I went, I went back again um, to the hospital, um, and she was much brighter. Um, still, what happened? But the it was like she was growing up in front of my eyes. That's probably the best way to describe it. So, mummy, uh-huh. she was three, four years old. Um, but by the next day, she was maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. Yeah, that's probably the best way to describe it. Wow, yeah. Um, and I remember the consultant um, coming in the afternoon and um, explaining to us, I wanted to do some memory checks and so on. So just start to test, test your... Um, your um, responses, memory and so on. Um, and that was um, very good. Um, her age, parents' names, where she was born, where did she work, um, all these things. Um, and then uh, I remember having a laugh when um, he went, who's the Prime Minister? And uh, it was David Cameron at the time. She said, oh, him. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I knew she was okay. She was doing <laughs> good at that time. Um, and, yeah, that's how we went on. Um, in intensive care. I think day two in the evening we were transferred up um, to the cardiology ward. And I knew it was serious when they were transferring her. I'm saying serious, but she was. Um, they were comfortable that she could move to the cardiology ward. Um, but we had four nurses, um, a consultant with a backpack on. So I knew things, we weren't out of the woods yet. <laughs> was, that, was that an IED in the backpack, do you think? Um, it was a huge backpack. I think they had everything. I think they had another consultant in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, up into cardiology, um, and therefore I stayed there another two nights. Um, Susan had a room. You know when you're getting better in cardiology when you get advanced from your own private room into a ward and so on, yeah. and, so, um, and see less of the nurses. Uh-huh. So, so how, how long was she in hospital in total? Um, so that was um, two days in intensive care, um, seven days in cardiology, um, and then um, she was transferred over um, after seven days um, to Edinburgh to have her ICD fitted and to get an angiogram um, and get her ICD fitted. Yeah. So had, that, had they come to a diagnosis by then? Yeah, well, absolutely not. <laughs> so she'd been for every test known to man. It's, it's funny, we've had this conversation lately um, when Susan's asked me what test has she had Um and I just said, you've had every test. They've checked you from head to toe. Uh, she goes, but what tests have I had? And I, you know, I, I don't know she's had MRIs and so on. Um, and I was told it was head to toe, but it's something she wants to explore. Um, and the consultant that we were attached to up at cardiology at the time, um, his name escapes me, um, he was um, keen, very keen on finding out about electrics. Um, so all the tests were coming back from Susan that they could manage at the local hospital um, with a negative, very healthy heart. Um, there's no issues here whatsoever. Can't find anything. Um, 
So he had a lot of theories he wanted to explore in the longer terms um, because he was very interested in um, the electrics of the heart. Um, but there was no diagnosis whatsoever, um, and that's one of the reasons they wanted to transfer it across to Edinburgh, one for an ICD, but they wanted to do an angiogram first. When, when you said no diagnosis, do you mean that there was no cause for it? So it's no. a idiopathic uh, diagnosis? No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. All the data they had, the only data they had um, was from the ambulance defib when they first arrived, and that showed um, that she was in um, VF, um, so they didn't have any history prior to that. So how, how do you guys, or how did you feel about that diagnosis then, and how do you feel about it now? I'm, I'm presuming you still don't know. No, we still don't know. Still idiopathic. Um, so then it was quite frustrating um, in one aspect because it's a question of, okay, will this happen again? When's it going to happen again? Um, and well, we still have that question to this day. Um, and if it continues on, that will be the question we have for the rest of our lives. Um, the consultant we had at the time was keen, as I say, he was very keen on electrics and he was wanting to do all sorts of tests. Um, he moved on um, after Susan had her ICD fitted. Um, so none of this has come to fruition. Um, one of our other concerns was to get our children checked as well. Um, you know, was this hereditary? Whatever it was. Um, but any of the advice we've taken is, well, we don't know what it is, so what do we check for? Um, but in, in any case, um, for that part, uh, just it was last Saturday, actually, we were driving um, up to the university to pick my daughter up and bring her home um, when we saw um, a, a volunteer's van. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, Susan Googled it, um, and it's um, a, a voluntary service throughout the UK which um, carries out ECGs, etc., on children. Um, oh, uh, cardiac risk in the young, was it? Cry? Yeah, that's cry. That's exactly it. So um, she was read over that um, on the internet when we were driving up the road to pick her daughter up. Um, so all three children are now booked in um, through cry. Um, I think it's next Sunday they go. Um, so we've done it through that um, that um, way rather than through the, the NHS to get that part checked. Um, but no, back to the, the question again. Um, so it wasn't answered. We had hope that we had this keen consultant who was going to carry out all these magical tests and come to a conclusion for us. That never transpired to him moving on. And our current consultant, who, don't get me wrong, is um, a, a fantastic man. Um, he's, um, we, we love him a bit. Um, but his focus is on maintaining stability and a good way of life. That's the best way to describe him. Um, I gave that to us, I think, with his advice and help. Uh-huh. So there's no no genetic testing on the... No genetic test on Horizon. Um, we've asked um, if that's something we could do, uh, but he says, I don't know what to test for um, because you've got no diagnosis. So Susan's angiogram, when she had that, the consultant who carried that out said, I wish my heart was as healthy as yours. Um, no, um, nothing. And they've, they've had a look to see um, if she's got any overactive um, electrical work in her heart and so on that they can do an ablation on. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Albeit we found something later on, but we'll get there. <laughs> Maybe the tests in the future will improve and uh, around all us idiopathic uh, people up together and 
run a, run us through a few more tests. It would be it would be nice to get an answer. It would be lovely to get an answer. I mean, we sometimes fall back on, and I mentioned early on about the antibiotics that Susan was on, um, and we sometimes fall back on that. Um, so, that's a known cause, is it? Um, I don't know. Um, but that's the only change in lifestyle that we could identify. Um, and she had um, tablets, she had IV antibiotics, um, and I think it was seven or eight different antibiotics she had. Um, so, yeah, we, we don't know. We're merely guessing. Um, who knows? You've had a, a horrendous time, and then Susan's been in the hospital and uh, improved somewhat, and then it's time for, for discharge. Uh, what what are your thoughts around um, Susan coming home and being and you're being the main carer and looking oh after dear. her? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh dear! So prior to her going over to get her ICD, um, I'd started my PhD in hearts. <laughs> yeah, learning about the heart. So <laughs> yeah, before I say by the time she went across the Edinburgh, I'd read a lot because that's what I like to do. I like to know what people are talking about and be able to talk the same language as them. Um, clearly not be on the same level as some, but I don't want will pulled over my eyes. Um, not that medical people would do that um, maliciously. Um, absolutely not. However, I wanted to know, let them know that I know what you're talking about. Keep explaining more because I want to find out why um, and so on. Um, I even went and priced up. I didn't know much about ICDs, but I went and priced up a defib to have in the house um, because I was having one near us all the time. Um, but then we learned the wonders of an ICD, um, which I knew nothing about. I knew about pacemakers, or a rough idea about pacemakers, nothing about ICDs. Um, so anyway, yes, we got Susan home, so I stayed in the house, and our parents went to pick her up. Um, I have to say, and I'll just jump back a little bit, that um, I think it's 5% of ICD is getting fitted. The person suffers a punctured lung, so... Susan knocked that one on the head as well. Um, so she got a one-inch tear in her lung um, from the um, mm-hmm. insertion of the ICD, so I had to stay in another 48 hours whilst that settled down. She has chronic asthma, um, which is medicated, so that was a concern for us as well. Um, but um, no, after the 48 hours um, extension in the hospital, um, she got home. She came home with mum and dad, um, and... Uh, yeah, that's when the new normal started. Um, so, yeah, just over the, the... It's strange. It was just building up our strength. I wouldn't say her confidence because she had no idea what had happened, no recollection of what had happened whatsoever. Um, no recollection of visiting the friends beforehand. And as far as she was concerned, it happened to somebody else other than she had an ICD fitted and a scar... Um, and very sore ribs because um, I'd managed to smash all the ribs um, doing the, the <laughs> CPR. Um, but she had no recollection of it whatsoever. Um, so therefore, very little anxiety, anything like that, because um, as far as Susan was concerned, it happened to somebody else. Um, slightly different for me. Um, again, I could still run it like a camera through my head, a film of what happened. Um, we don't go to Asda anymore. We get our shopping delivers. It's a joke I commonly make frequently. Um, but you, you you did actually go back there. You yeah, said I went you, back. as part of your trim, you you've been back, but you won't go back there to shop. I've been back a few times to just pop in, and it's on my way to work. Uh, and I've popped in if I'm going to get 
coffee, milk. Um, but it's horrible. <laughs> I'm like a magnet. I am I'm drawn to the coffee aisle. Um, and I just, no matter how hard I try, it's like a sixth sense. That's the best way to describe it. I replay everything in my head when I go in. Um, I don't want to, but the sixth side of me does. Um, it's hard to describe. Um, Susan's not been in. Um, she asked me, oh, maybe about a year ago when we were driving past, she says, I'll just pop into Asda. <laughs> you will not. <laughs> so, yeah, she's never, well, she, maybe she has been in and not told me. Um, my fear is that it'll jog her memory, um, and she has no recollection of that. I would guess that it won't jog her memory. No, I don't think it will. Um, no, from all the reading and to the chat I've done with the likes of yourself and so on. Yeah, I get that, but I need to get over that, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, um, but just back to the, 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 the being at home. Um, so let me just think how things were there. Um, I didn't have difficulty sleeping, neither did Susan. However, I would constantly wake up, if that makes sense, and I would check that she was alive. It's silly, but that's what I'd do. I think that's it's quite common, actually. Yeah, absolutely. My, my wife did it, and uh, I've seen lots of other people say that. Just check if she's breathing, touch her, see if she's warm, <laughs> which is silly. But, yeah, yeah no, that's, um, that's how life went. And to an extent, it's still like that, three over three years down the line. Yeah, um, I still do that. The, the question, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> Which I get around for now, but I still do it, and I shouldn't. But um, the constant checking on um, Messenger to see that she had been active, that was the, the way I knew when I was back at work and so on. Um, what was, if she was moving about, it's silly because um, she's got an ICD. You've got to trust it. Um, she's just not going to pass out her ICD's going to kick in and she's going to shout for help so <laughs> it's kind of hypervigilance isn't it it's, it's like... yeah it's beyond belief um, as I say I think the, the, the funny story I told on my blog was um, and the, the first time I went out um, I left her on her own in the house I was only out for 20 minutes so when I came back I couldn't find her in the house um, I was panicking like mad and I went out to her outside garage we have a box freezer out there and her legs were hanging out the box freezer and I thought she'd collapsed in the freezer. I thought she's dead in the freezer. Um, and she'd actually just take nudge to clean it out <laughs> and laughed at me. So, uh, but there's been lots of these scenarios where I've not even told her that I've panicked. <laughs> Looking about, this is stupid. But, and yeah, it still continues to this day. What what do you put that down to? Is that is that part of the trauma you you experienced? Is that is it that you haven't processed it all properly, or um... no? I've processed it. I think um, it's that it's that fear that it's happening again. And then if we just go back to an earlier conversation, the idiopathic part is probably part to blame of that one. We don't know. Um, so how do we know it's not going to happen again? Um, we don't know. And I think that's what plays on on my mind. Okay. So so uh, how were your um your employers about you taking time off and and what about susan did she, did she go back to to work at all and how was she yeah absolutely so my employers um i was helped by rachel um rachel is a firearms officer um who at that time was looking after the previous prime minister gordon brown he stays in her area 
um, and Rachel's looking after him. Um, she'd popped into Asda to buy biscuits to take to the team on her way to work and obviously went through a rather traumatic experience. Um, you'll see where this is going in a second. Um, so when Rachel got to work, she declared to her supervisor straight away that she didn't feel in a fit mental state to handle a firearm, which is the correct thing to do. Our supervisor knows me very well. I've worked with him for a long time. Um, and the senior officer on duty um, was contacted um, so they could withdraw from duty temporarily. Um, and he's a good friend of mine. Um, he contacted my boss. Um, so I reckon I received a text from my boss offering support um, within... I'd just arrived at the hospital. So we do the sums there. Wow. Probably 40 minutes after it had occurred. Well, that's brilliant. Um, yeah. And that was... Forget about work. I know. I, I know what's happened. Contact me if you need anything. It was all along these lines, um, and I, I couldn't fault that um, at all. Um, I was off work for three weeks in total. I did have a debate with one supervisor about me being off work, um, and that debate. Um, I was advised to take some leave. Um, if I wanted to extend it further than a week, I've been off, and I, I tried to explain that I'm, I'm not, or or go to the doctor and get signed off. That was the other one. I said I'm not ill, I'm not suffering from anxiety or stress, I'm not in a fit state. I was a frontline inspector at the time, and that involves, um, at times, making very crucial decisions based on little evidence at short notice. Um, so I was doing a very important job uh, and I said I'm not in a position to come back at this time to do that, but I'm not ill. Um, you might see me washing my car, you might see me at the shops, um, but I'm not on holiday either. Um, I'm going through a series of trauma. Uh, another boss, um, further rank up, I discussed with him. Um, and again, it's somebody I've known for a very long time and he just said take as long off as I needed. Um, and keep reporting through my line management, um, and it would give me as much support as I could. And that's the way it went. I uh, was off work in total for three weeks, albeit the final week um, I was popping in and doing some odd paperwork and so on um, because um, I wanted to try and get a, a return strategy in place. Um, one thing just occurred to me um, is that you've um, been uh, a trainer of, of, of first aid and stuff like that and um I, I think i've seen some way that you've done cpr before on on uh, members of the public so how does that um contrast between doing it on someone you don't know to doing it on someone you know and love um it's the same it might seem a very hard thing to say um but doing CPR on a human body is different from the Rissociani. Um And when I was doing CPR on Susan, that was the same as I've done a CPR on other people. Um, I just knew that um, I wasn't stopping and I didn't want anybody else. That was the only difference. I didn't want anybody else to have the responsibility of it failing. Yeah, that's the best way to describe that. Um, whereas... Um, when I've done it with other people, um, we work as a team. When you get tired, you swap over. Um, but that was the only difference there. Um, I definitely moved into work mode 
um, and I was doing CPR on a person and was trying to save their life. Um, and I, that was the only difference was I was not stopping when I was with Susan or asking for any help. I was doing it because I wanted that responsibility if it failed. Unfortunately, it didn't. So. <laughs> it didn't, yeah. Other ones have failed, unfortunately, but that one didn't. So, what I was, I was angling at was was the the trauma that you've been experiencing of the event. Did, how does that contrast to the sort of trauma of of doing it on a member of the public? Um, I, I can't compare that because I've got the aftermath with Susan, and that's the traumatic part. Um, I do CPR. I've done CPR on um, other people um, who I don't know. Um, and the last I see of them is when they're off in an ambulance. And I know very little mm-hmm. about, I might have to go and see their family um, and so on. But that's it. And then move on. So it's, it's, I can't compare it. Whereas the, the trauma with, um, with your partner is that it, it's more drawn out, I guess, because you've got the, the immediate impact and then you've got to live with that trauma for forever. Well, Forever, yeah. Yeah, forever, yeah. So that won't go away. It's um, it's in my head. Um, I, I always describe having my bottom drawer. That's the best way to describe it. So at the moment, my bottom drawer is open. It's unlocked and it's out. Um, and every person who is in emergency services and the military, I suppose, will have a bottom drawer. Um, and that's where you pack things away and you lock it because, um, as I said earlier on, we, we see things... Um, are involved in things that human beings shouldn't see or be involved in, and you have to have some way to to deal with them. Um, yeah, and I pack them away in my bottom drawer, and it stays firmly locked most of the time. I used to open it when I was training police officers. Um, I can teach all the legislation you want, but um, I wanted to share with officers how I felt and how I managed trauma. Um, because I don't think you can teach that. You can only share that experience and give them a toolkit to work with. So when I was training police officers, um, I used to open the bottom drawer a, f- a fair bit as well, and it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. As as like, well, how has life changed for you since uh, since the event? Yeah, um, yeah, very much so. So um, we had a holiday booked for. April, start of April, to Lanzarote. Um, it's like a second home, to, so we've been there many times. Um, and we were determined we were going on holiday to Lanzarote. <laughs> but um, Susan's GP persuaded her otherwise that it was maybe not the sensible thing to do. Not so much physical, but more for the mental side that we were going through. Um, so we, we didn't go that April, Um Susan went back to work in May. She got um, a phased return. She works very close by, um, so luckily can walk to work. Um, it's only a couple of hundred yards from her house where she works. So, um, that's fine as well. And she works in a school, so we knew she was going to have a lengthy period off during the summer for the summer holidays. So strangely enough, we did actually go on holiday that year in July. We braved up and jumped on a plane and went across to Lanzarote. Um, it was different, though. Um, it was different because I had um, the phrase book all set up. And I knew how to explain in Spanish, something cardiac arrest, ICD. 
Um, I knew there was no Medtronic facilities. That's Susan Sanity CDs are Medtronic. There was no facilities um, in Lanzarote, but there is one in Gran Canaria. Um, I knew all the routes to the hospital where the medical centres were and what their described capabilities um, were as well. And we went off for a week's holiday. Yeah, it was different. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a, a treat, a punishment treat. <laughs> <laughs> but all, all that extra planning you did about the hospital and uh, the routes and everything is that just your police training kicking in, or uh, is that you being hyper vigilant, or, or is it something that you'd recommend other uh, people do when they go on holiday, maybe for the first time or any time, really? It just gave me that degree of comfort. Was I ever going to use it? I don't know. Um, my day job now is business continuity and resilience, so um, that maybe tells you why I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Would I recommend other people to do that? Do what you think's right. I've gave you an option. If you're listening to this and you think that's a good idea, then do it. Yeah, yeah. I think for some people it maybe like you give you an extra um, degree of reassurance, really. Uh, should anything go wrong, but okay. It's a tricky um, one. Yeah, it's a tricky it one. Is. Answer, yeah. Since you've been a, a member of the group, you've uh, contributed several times to our blog, which is that uh, there have been some excellent articles, and I'm sure um, it can't have been easy writing about your experience. And um, can you tell me how you felt about writing about your ordeal? Yeah, sure. And, I'd like to jump back a little bit, actually, um, and yeah, sure. to the blogs. Um, so, so if I jump back a little bit, um, I searched high and low um, in the months after Susan was home, um, researching, trying to find out more, um, and I struggled to find out. I wanted to find somebody like Susan um, who I could speak to, who Susan could speak to, because I wanted to help her in her recovery. Um and I couldn't find anything or anybody. Um, and I remember reading an article in the, it was the British Heart Foundation, had um, a number of articles out, and one of them was from a young lady, Rihanna Brown. Um, and I must recontact her at some stage. Um, I've not contacted her for a while. So I contacted Rihanna and just explained her situation. She's a similar age to her son. Um, Andriana had suffered a cardiac arrest at the gym, had an ICD, and um, she talked through the, the BHF stuff about um, her recovery. Um, and she was really kind and spoke um, with me at length. Um, Susan wasn't wanting to engage with anybody at that time, um, which um, I respected and understood, but it helped me understand a little bit more. Um and then probably in the, the, the coming months, um, I can't remember exactly how, I, I found the sudden cardiac arrest site and the whole world opened for me. We weren't alone. <laughs> there was lots of people out there. Um, and it was just, it was a huge relief for me. Um, yeah, it was just great to find there's a whole community out there. I mean, I started explaining that to Susan that, you know, we're not here on our own at all. And it is unusual, but... Um, there's lots and lots of people out there. Um, and that's why um, I wanted to contribute. I wanted to share my story with other people because we're now three years, over three years down the line, and people will be at the first week, the first day even, just now possibly listening to this or um, 
going on to read stories, and that's why I wanted to write a blog. Um, it helps me deal with things, to speak about it. Um, and one, that's why I write the story out. I wanted to document it as well um, for the future so we could refer back to it. Um, and that's why I'm speaking to you here today as well. It, it helps me, and I'm hoping that it will help other people who are not, uh, uh, I wouldn't say I'm at an advanced, advanced stage, but um, who are at an earlier stage and letting them know that you're not alone. Um, it's okay to feel how you feel. Um, and there's other people out there are in a very similar boat who you can share experiences with. Indeed, indeed. And um, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head that when you are out there, that relatively speaking, there are very few cardiac arrest survivors in the in the country i think it's approximately around the i believe a hundred thousand cardiac arrests a year in the uk half of those i think it is that actually get attended to uh, and only eight percent actually survive and i believe it probably in scotland at that time the uh, survival rate was probably lower than the uh, the national average of about eight percent i know you've uh, you guys have had a a program the last couple of years to improve that considerably and uh, uh, Carol Smiley and her, her uh, new song um, and a lot of other AED and CPR uh, initiatives going on, I think. Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot here. So every dentist in Scotland has an AED now. Um, there's a, a number of them. first responder groups have databases with the locations of the AEDs. Um, so that's that's all good. Um, I just jogged my memory because I remember my first day back at work um, after I'd been off for the three weeks. Um, you're talking about AEDs there. We have to do a refresher course each year in um, um, our officer safety, the use of our force, um, etc., um, and also first aid CPR. So um, guess what my first session was, my first day back. Who scheduled that, eh? uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I did. Um, and we usually, we quickly go over CPR. Um, but that day I sat and told the story of what had happened three weeks prior to it. Um, and officers there paid a bit more attention. Um, when I taught first aid at the police college, I know I digress, but when I taught at the police college, um, I taught officers um, from the minute they came in the door with a, a, a business suit on to the minute they left, um, I taught them how to be a police officer, and that meant teaching law, it meant teaching first aid, communication skills, how to get fit, everything to be a police officer. But I always said when I was teaching CPR and first aid, this is the most important lesson you will ever do as a police officer because it could save a family member's life. Um, and I always started my – we do a five-day first aid course for each police officer – and I would always start the day one of the five days with that phrase. Um, it came home, didn't it? <laughs> it did, yeah. in a big way. <laughs> yeah. I guess doing um, the CPR training, um, CPR training that you do regular probably helped in the actual uh, event, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely, because there's no time to think about trying to remember what to do. You've got to move straight into it. There's time, as you know, is of the essence. Um, every second counts, um, but unfortunately, um, when emergency services respond, whether it be police, fire, or ambulance, whoever gets there first, um, have to do something, and we have to know what to do. 
um, and there's no time to sit back. You've got to make instant split decisions um, and react to the incident you're at um, and justify why you're reacting to that incident in the manner you are. Um, and that's all down to good training. Um, and each of the emergency services, um, certainly in the UK, we're, we're, um, we have exceptional training. Uh-huh. And uh, you mentioned a little while ago about the uh, AEDs uh, uh, program in in Scotland, and uh, you've you've actually contributed to that, I believe, by uh, uh, setting up some of your own uh, or program for training and um, and funding at AED. Yeah, we have, we have. Um, so we stay in a small village, a population of three and a half thousand, um, and. We wanted to give something back. Um, Susan's good friends. Um, Susan used to sit on the school board at the high school. Um, and a lady she met there and became good friends with um, is um, she leads a first responder group. So when Susan was well enough and I was well enough, and this would describe it, we um, wanted to give something back a little bit. So um, we've, we've arranged now, I think it's four um, CPR sessions. So that's around about 70 or 80 people we've um, had trained um, through the voluntary group. Um, and people make donations um, to that group. Um, Susan Goodhonor, on a, on a school training day, um, got the first responders into the school and all the staff were taught um, CPR as well. Um, and she stood up um, and told a story, which I think that was the first time. And I'm very brave of her to tell her story in front of her peers. Um, and through the local community council, um, we raised sufficient funds um, through donations from local groups and purchased an, an AED, which is now situated in the village. Um, it's not been used, but it's been accessed twice with potential for use um, because it is on the um, database for the volunteers and it's also on the Scottish Ambulance Service database. So they know it's there and um, it is pleasing that... People have accessed it on two occasions. Um, they've not needed to use it, thank goodness. But at least it's there, though, in, in case it is needed. Yeah, yeah the, pub, the, the response in the village has been, again, fantastic. Um, yeah, absolutely delighted um, that we've made that effort to get something in like that. It's very worthwhile. Um, and it sits it's in a lit area. It's on our main street. It's in an unlocked cabinet. Um, and it's been must be there about nearly a year now, and it's been respected, thank goodness. Good. You, you do see some other ones that are vandalised and people try to steal them. It's uh, I can't I can't fathom out those people who do that. But uh. no, 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 no. I, um, I discussed long and hard with the community council and the first responders um, whether we put it in a locked cabinet or not. Um, and I know there's a lot in locked cabinets. I understand why, um, but time is of the essence. Um, it is insured through the local council. Um, it's not worth anything to anybody. We've put that out in local newsletters. Um, we've also done training with the school as well, with the children. Um, the first responders have spoken to the children about the AED it's in the village and what it does do and what it doesn't do. Um, um, you know, it's not, no scrap parts, it's got no reusable parts, it's no use to anybody other than saving a life. So um, that appears to have been respected so far. Well, that's good. You've also um, given back in some other ways by uh, you organised a um, meetup yeah. in, uh, in Edinburgh last year. Yeah, that was that was good fun. Um, so we, you know, what we thoroughly enjoyed um, enjoyed that. And uh, probably the, the the first part of that was um, um, 
we were looking for some help, and I think it was yourself that put me, myself and Susan in touch with Sarah, um, and we met up um, with Sarah and her partner Di, um, and that was the first time Susan had met another female who'd had a cardiac arrest, had an ICD, and um, it was great. They just chatted away, and it was fantastic, and Di and I chatted away about, are you okay? And so on, <laughs> that question. And um, we had to, we organised to get together in Edinburgh. Um, it was a fun day, I think. There was nine or ten survivors in total. Um, Travelled from uh, down England, across Scotland. Um, it was a it was a poor day, and sadly for the weather, but we jumped on an open-top bus. We all had good chat. We sat in the pub, had a few beers, uh, went for something to eat, had a great laugh, um, met the Grim Reaper, as some people have seen the pictures on the Royal <laughs> Mile in Edinburgh, um, which um, the survivors had to get the photograph taken with. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really good day, and um, we all felt really fulfilled and satisfied by the end of it. So it's something you'd certainly recommend other survivors and partners and other family members do. Yeah, you never know when you're meeting people who you don't know, but you've all got something in common. You're maybe just not accepting that, but whether you're a partner or a survivor, you've all got something in common. And it's not as if you have nothing to talk about because <laughs> everybody's got questions and they get, they'll always have questions. So there's always something to talk about. It's not like walking into a room where there's a lot of strangers. Um, absolutely not. You've all got something in common. And no matter how good your conversational skills, how shy you are, um, you'll find somebody to talk to. Indeed. And one of the other ways that you've given back, you apart from the uh, actual blog post, you actually uh, did something at my behest, which was, uh, you probably hate me for it now, but was, that, <laughs> but was actually to write about the DVLA, uh, bearing in mind your your legal background, and because it's, a, it's a, a topic that crops up time and time again in the group, I'm sure you know, yeah. um, it came up yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> driving it's everyone just seems to get so confused about it um i don't want to go into it the 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 detail of it now but um you got any thoughts about how how the process can be um improved yes um there's a link for me missing between the health side and the dvla side and it's a link of support um because i see that as where the feelings are um, people have gone through the worst trauma anybody could ever imagine, whether it be a survivor or their family members, um, and they're given the advice from the consultants or the direction that they have not to drive, and given whatever the period is, the consultants are trained and have that knowledge. Um, however, they're not told anything further, and a lot of people have suffered brain injury and memory loss and there's no help in between there and then knowing you have to contact DVLA it may it may just come back to you two or three months later I have to do something about that but you're just told to stop driving and for me there needs to be a link between that part and the DVLA part and helping people to fill out the correct forms if they need to fill out forms um, it is so complicated because 
we only think about cardiac arrest or um, a form of heart failure. But um, when you look at the medical conditions that DVLA cover for driving, um, it's extensive. There are hundreds, um, and as we only focus on a small amount, um, they can't have specific forms for every condition. Um, and I'm, I'm quite convinced they're a very small unit as well. Um, it's not this mass block, office block of thousands of people. Um, and I think that's the solution, is to have some form of support, not just for DVLA, but for everything. Um, I don't know if that should come from voluntary groups. I don't know if that should come from NHS or from the government. Um, but there's a link missing there um, between the consultant and other outside bodies providing support. That could be a link as well, and I'll go off tangent slightly, but um, understanding your ICD, understanding home monitoring, there's a missing link there. Mm-hmm. Did, did um, It just made me think, did um, Susan get rehab? No. To basically answer it, absolutely not. Um, so for psychological aspect, no. Um, we've not went into depth, but Susan had a, a relapse um, where um, she went into VT um, and that brought on anxiety. Um, and um, so rehab for the initial cardiac arrest um, from the psychological part, none, and none was offered. The second part um, where she remembered her whole incident um, we were put on a waiting list for NHS. That was taking far too long. So um, luckily enough, I had um, an avenue to approach through my work. And um, she received counselling through um, a, a scheme from my work. And that was that was um, very, very important on our road to recovery after our second, excuse me, after our, our relapse, our first relapse. Um, physical rehab, um, absolutely nothing offered again. Um, now bear in mind I could see why that happened slipped through the net so she hadn't had heart failure heart attack as such Um, she was working through two NHS trusts Um, so her initial recovery period was in one NHS trust and her ICD and her um, angiogram was through another NHS trust so there was a failing there Um, we only found out about physical rehab because my auntie had also suffered a heart attack a year previous um, and I had a very good cardiac nurse and gave me her name and Susan contacted her and um, got her onto a rehab programme at the local gym. Uh-huh. And how did that go? Uh, it went well until Susan's relapse. <laughs> when <laughs> she um, suffered other issues of confidence um, and of dizziness which is another article you've uh, been up recently as well, which she still suffers from. Yeah, I mean, uh, coming back to the original point about having someone there to sort of coordinate all of, the, all of these aspects of, of survivorship is, is something that we really do need. And uh, It's very important. Um, see, I'm, I'm lucky I'm in a position that I can, I can read law and put it into layman's terms and recognise risk and understand the importance of doing certain things, and I'm referring to the DVLA, um, and I know the importance of it or what the consequences could be, whereas a lot of other people, the majority of other people, I suggest would not. Their consultant says, don't drive. But, okay, do I have to send my licence away or not? 
Um, what paperwork do I use? Um, I don't know. Um, I've not, we, as we were reading the other day, and again, we're not going to depths with that, but um, okay, no heart failure, but an ICD is a precaution. So what does that mean? It's difficult for DVLA to cover every single <laughs> um, condition, every single scenario. Um, it's probably impossible, in fact. It, it is probably impossible, you're right, but that, I think something needs to be done to make it a little bit clearer for people, or even if it's someone who's an expert on hand to be able to guide people through the system. No, no, absolutely, because, again, having witnessed the trauma of giving up a driving licence, it's not just stopping driving, it's your life, it's your livelihood, it's your independence. Um, it's a, it feels like a punishment, I would suggest, um, for something you don't deserve. Um, you have to rely on people. Um, it's huge. And I'm not entirely sure the consultants, and I don't blame them, but I'm not entirely sure that they, they can recognise as a whole the impact that that short sentence of you've not to drive for um, has on individuals. Um, and that must have an effect if the DVLA process doesn't go smoothly, that must build up anxiety, which again puts extra pressure on the NHS because people will then go and see their GPs, etc. Um, and I, I certainly know from our experience that the mental health side of the NHS is bursting at the seams when that little void in the middle could be filled um, just to offer that assistance and advice. I've mentioned that, I can't remember where I mentioned it, um, but the in the police service, we have family liaison officers. Um, so if there's been a traumatic incident and I would, along the lines of a murder, if we go there, we'll, we'll bring in a trained family liaison officers and you'll frequently hear them referred to um, on the news and so on. And that, that, that person's job is to provide the link between the police and the family, act as that support or put people in touch with the correct support and so on, um, but also be there with a withdrawal scheme as well to ensure that there's no attachment. They offer that support, um, the inquiries go smooth and the appropriate outcome is achieved. Um, that's a process that's been going for a number of years now um, and I think NHS need to look at something along that line. Mm -hmm. it sounds a very sensible word here. Okay, thank you, Stuart, for that. Um, we're coming to the end of our chat now and um, sometimes I like to ask uh, people what were their three tips they would give to other partners or lifesavers? Um, you got anything for us? Uh, yeah. Um, it's okay. That's the first thing. Um, live life to the full because it is a shake-up and certainly what's happened to us has changed our whole view on life. Um, absolutely. Um, live for the moment. You never know when it's going to get taken away from you. Um, and speak with others. Take your experience. You have quite a unique experience. Um, there's other people out there who'd benefit from your experience because they'll be at a different stage. Um, and I'm sure they could take some snippets. Speak with others. Yeah, Some very wise words there, I think, especially that last one. Um I think a lot of people get a lot from speaking with each other and sometimes people just don't realise realise that as a very simple tool, really, and a, a simple therapy. No, it's easy. It's, it is easy. And, well, 
as I say, you mentioned we've been going you know, for an hour or so now, and um, yeah, I feel better now. <laughs> I feel bad to start <laughs> with, but I'm feeling good. Good, good. Well, I say thank you very much for your time, Stuart. It's been a really enlightening hour or so, and uh, thanks for sharing it with us. And uh, hopefully, I'll meet you up, meet with you sometime soon. Um, perhaps you come to the the next big meetup which we're having in September in the uh, middle of the country in Oakham. If anyone's listening and wants to come along to that, it's sure to be a great day. We're having uh, lots of people come along and talk. And uh, as Stuart mentioned, it's just great to talk with other survivors and partners. Um, hopefully see you there. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye.